Zolife Vest is a proud sponsor of Cardio Nerds. New data from 96,000 real-world patients show advanced arrhythmia discrimination technology was associated with a significant reduction in false alarms. See how these results may improve your patient's experience at lifevesttechnology.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardi Nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome to the Cardi Nerds Beyond the Board series, where we build on the Mayo Clinic Cardiology Board Review course to go beyond the boards, to put our knowledge to practice with a series of illustrative cases. Today, we dive into the nuances of infective endocarditis. This discussion was planned by our fellow leads, Drs. Tiffany Dong and Matt Delfiner. Matt is an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He just finished his General Cardiology Fellowship at Temple University, where he also did his internal medicine training. His passions include all things hemodynamics, medical education, and echocardiography, and I think that's why we get along so well. I've really enjoyed getting to know Matt as CardiNerds Fit Ambassador from Temple. Hey, Matt, welcome back to CardiNerds. Thanks, Amit. I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Tiffany Dong. Tiffany is a first-year advanced imaging fellow at Cleveland Clinic, where she also completed general cardiology fellowship and second year as a chief fellow. She previously served as CardioNerds Fit Ambassador from the institution. Her interests include multimodality imaging, including TEE, nuclear cardiology, CT, and MRI. Hello, Tiffany. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the great intro. I have the privilege of introducing our faculty expert, Dr. Michael Cullen. Dr. Cullen is an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic and an associate program director. Many of us have benefited from his teaching through his publications and his lectures through the Mayo Clinic's ECHO and General Cardiology Board Reviews. It is such an honor to continue learning from you today, Dr. Cullen. Thank you, uh, Tiffany, Matt, and Amit. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. I'm delighted to participate in your Beyond the Board series with other faculty from our Mayo Clinic Cardiology Board Review course. Pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Cohen. Let's go beyond the boards with a series of illustrative cases. For the first case, let's meet an 81-year-old gentleman with a history of mitral valve prolapse with mild to moderate mitral regurgitation diagnosed 30 years ago. He has been asymptomatic until recently. Over the past few weeks, he's been feeling tired. He exercises regularly, lifting weights, using a recumbent bike, but now he just doesn't have the energy to continue his usual exercise routine. He's not had any particular shortness of breath, chest discomfort, palpitations, fevers, night sweats, or any other noticeable symptoms. His vital signs in clinic are unremarkable. His primary care doctor ordered an echocardiogram which reveal a highly mobile 15 by 15 millimeter circular echo density. But Dr. Cullen, I have a question. With this case, what would your next step be? We have an older gentleman with known valvular disease and fatigue, and now a mass on his mitral valve. What do we do? Well, thanks, Matt. So this is a complex situation right off the bat. If I'm seeing this gentleman in the outpatient setting, the first thing I would do is put him in the hospital. He has not necessarily definite infective endocarditis, but his symptoms and his imaging findings are certainly concerning for endocarditis. It's a very serious high morbidity, high mortality illness. Patients can decompensate quickly. 
And all indications are pointing in the direction of a diagnosis of infective endocarditis. So he needs to be managed as an, as an inpatient at a facility with access to multidisciplinary cardiac care, including cardiology, cardiac surgery, infectious diseases, and potentially neurology and cardiac anesthesia. So you get the guy in the hospital, that's step one. Then you have to get blood cultures. You want two to three sets, ideally six hours apart before starting any antibiotic therapy. When the patient gets to the hospital, you've got to do a complete HMP. You want to ask about risk factors for endocarditis, things like recent dental work, indwelling catheters or IV drug use, or any immunocompromised state. Your physical exam should not only include a complete cardiopulmonary exam, as you would normally do, but also look for peripheral stigmata of endocarditis and any neurological complications. Great. Before we dive into a thorough history and physical, with only the information you have from his primary care doctor right now, are we able to say that this patient has endocarditis? No, not definitively. So this is where the Duke criteria come into play. The Duke criteria were initially published in 1994 and then modified again in the year 2000. They've been validated in a number of subsequent studies and really form the cornerstone of endocarditis diagnosis. And so when you think about the modified Duke criteria, you can put patients into one of four buckets. Bucket number one is definite infective endocarditis by pathological criteria. Bucket number two is definite infective endocarditis by clinical criteria. Bucket number three is possible infective endocarditis by clinical criteria. And bucket number four is rejected infective endocarditis. When we think about differentiating the different criteria, can be, the definitions can become confusing. The way I like to think about the first one, definite infective endocarditis by pathological criteria is essentially bugs under the scope. If your pathologist calls you and says that I see bugs under the microscope, that patient has definite infective endocarditis by pathological criteria. And then when, we, when it comes to differentiating definite versus possible endocarditis by clinical criteria, you need to know how many major and minor criteria the patient have. We're going to get to the major and minor criteria in just a second. But definite infective endocarditis by clinical criteria is going to be two major, one major and three minor, or all five minor criteria. And then possible infective endocarditis by clinical criteria is going to be one major and one minor criteria, or three minor criteria. Okay, next question becomes, what are the major and the minor criteria? So if you have multiple positive blood cultures for organisms that typically cause infective endocarditis, it's one major criteria. If you have a single positive blood culture for Coxiella brunetti, that's a second major criteria. If you have evidence of endocardial involvement, which could mean new valvular regurgitation, could mean a vegetation, could mean an abscess, could mean a dehiscence of a prosthesis, that's your third major criteria. And you've got five minor criteria. So number one, predisposition, okay, risk factors for infective endocarditis. In this particular case, mitral valve prolapse meets that definition. Minor criteria number two, fever over 38 degrees Celsius without another explanation. Minor criteria number three would be one of the vascular phenomena. So here we're looking for things like arterial emboli, mycotic aneurysms, intracerebral hemorrhage, conjunctival hemorrhages, Janeway lesions, splinter hemorrhages, things you need to look for on your physical exam. Fourth minor criteria are the immunological phenomenon. These include glomerulonephritis, which is why you need to get a urinalysis on this patient. Oslo's nodes, Roth spots in the retina, 
or an abnormal rheumatoid factor. The fifth minor criteria is any blood culture evidence that doesn't meet major criteria. So it's important to know these Duke criteria because they're going to guide your initial evaluation. And as we collect more information on this patient, our ability to make the diagnosis is going to evolve, but we're going to need to consistently apply the Duke criteria. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Uh, That is uh, such a thorough and helpful answer. Uh, And our patient did end up getting her blood cultures drawn, and they ultimately grew cardiobacterium hominis after waiting eight long days for the cultures to grow. Now, we may all be cardiologists, but deep down, our inner internists are still trying to bust out. Is cardiobacterium hominis a usual organism for infective endocarditis? Uh, The answer to that is yes and no. The most common microbiological causes of infective endocarditis, particularly community-acquired endocarditis, are going to be staphylococcus species like staph aureus and coag negative staph. That's about 25%. And then the streptococci like viridin group strep and streptococcus galactolyticus, which is also known as strep bovis. That's about 35% of the community acquired endocarditis. Then we have the enterococcus species, which are about 10%. So cardiobactum hominis is one of the organisms in the HACEK group, H-A-C-E-K. Cardiobacterium is the C. These are gram-negative bacilli that colonize the oral pharynx and upper respiratory tract. The patient's prolonged time to diagnosis is not surprising. As a matter of fact, a lot of these HACEC organisms take several days of incubation to grow, which can lead to a delay in diagnosis and an increased risk of complications. Fortunately, it does not appear yet as if this patient has had any serious complications, but we don't have quite all the information. Thank you for going over all that, Dr. Cullen. Now, at this point, can we say confidently that he has endocarditis. He has no systemic phenomenon, but has positive cultures for a typical organism in vegetation and is a high-risk patient given his known valvulopathy, mitral valve prolapse with mild to moderate MR. He has two major criteria and one minor criterion. What say you? Absolutely, yes, Amit. This patient has definite infective endocarditis by clinical criteria. He has evidence of endocardial involvement with the vegetation. And he has a positive blood culture for an organism that typically cause infective endocarditis. So he has two major criteria that's definite infective endocarditis, and we can manage him accordingly. Just a quick question. What if you're in a situation where the clinical suspicion for endocarditis is very high, but the surface echo image quality is just not sufficient? What other imaging modalities could we use? So your first test in this situation is going to be a transesophageal echocardiogram. And I would make the argument that all patients with known or suspected endocarditis should probably have both a transthoracic and a transesophageal echocardiogram because they have different strengths. A transthoracic echocardiogram is going to be better at assessing ventricular size, ventricular function, pulmonary pressures, and filling pressures. A transesophageal echocardiogram is going to be better at looking for subtle vegetations that you may not be able to detect on transthoracic echocardiography. It's going to allow visualization of aortic and mitral valve morphology. It's going to help look for perivalvular complications, and it's going to help you assess regurgitant lesions, particularly mitral regurgitation. So in this patient, he already had his transthoracic echocardiogram. Step two is to get a transesophageal echocardiogram. Many patients will start with a transesophageal echocardiogram, and then if you diagnose endocarditis, you actually go back and get a transthoracic echocardiogram because you want to go 
look at the items that we talked about in terms of ventricular size, function, filling pressures, and the like. So I would argue that most patients probably deserve both tests. And that is what our patient did. Uh, after a quick initiation of antibiotics, he did have a TEE, uh, which again showed the same vegetation, but now there was severe mitral regurgitation, much worse than we were able to see on the transthoracic. So not thinking about the mitral regurgitation and just focusing on the endocarditis, what is the role of surgery here? Should we be calling CT surgery? Yes, absolutely. You should call surgery. They need to see the patient. They need to follow the patient. And this gets back to the initial question that we discussed about getting the patient to a place where you have easy access to a cardiovascular surgeon if the patient doesn't initially present to a facility with those capabilities. So you need to get surgery on board. Now, whether the patient goes to the operating room during this hospitalization or after he completes a course of antibiotics remains to be determined. So you have to look for your indications for surgical intervention. Class 1 indications, according to the most recent ACCHA valve guidelines for surgical intervention, would be staph aureus or fungal endocarditis on one of the left-sided valves, any evidence of perivalvular complications, persistent bacteremia, or evidence of recurrent embolization. Okay. can also look for things like big mobile vegetations greater than 10 millimeters in length, but right now, it's, it's not clear to me if his severe mitral regurgitation is related to his mitral valve prolapse and was present before the infective endocarditis developed, or if the infective endocarditis caused the severe mitral regurgitation. That's where your transesophageal echocardiogram findings are going to become important. If the patient has a clear perforation or evidence of perivalvular complications on his TEE, that's going to push you towards operating now. If, on the other hand, it looks like degenerative mitral valve disease with perhaps prolapse and a flail and then endocarditis on top of that, you could make an argument if the patient's not having heart failure or symptoms from the mitral regurgitation to let the patient lead a course of antibiotics and then come back and operate later. The bottom line is that he's going to need an operation. The question becomes one of timing, and this is going to require a multidisciplinary discussion, which is why involvement of cardiovascular surgery, infectious diseases, cardiology, and potentially other specialists up front is so important. Thank you for reviewing all of that. So now talking back to our patient, um, overall, our patient was not in clinical heart failure. He had no septic emboli, and his vegetation was less than two centimeters, but he has a severe mitral regurgitation. And even though he does not necessarily meet indications for the urgent surgery, everyone on the treatment team felt it was heading that way eventually. After lengthy discussions with the patient and his family, uh, they were very reticent to have surgery, and the team decided together to try to complete a course of antibiotics and then recheck to see how he's doing. Matt, you know, this is such a classic case of mitral valve endocarditis, and it's great how you incorporated shared decision-making into the treatment plan. As physicians, clinicians, sometimes waiting can be tough, especially when we think about the saying, you know, don't just stand there, do something. The opposite of that, which is in this case, don't just do something, stand there. But we're not just standing here, are we? Dr. Cullen, what should we be on the lookout for while waiting, both in terms of routine surveillance, when infective endocarditis is being medically managed like this, as well as looking out for potential complications of infective endocarditis that we should be on the lookout for and counsel our patients about. So in this situation, you're going to want to look for complications of the mitral valve, specifically the mitral regurgitation, which would present as heart failure predominantly, 
you also want to look for complications of the infective endocarditis. These are going to be things like embolization, which would be most concerning, particularly cerebral embolization, persistently positive blood cultures, recurrent fevers, or any imaging evidence or electrical evidence of perivalvular extension. So you can't just let this guy rest for four to six weeks while you treat him with antibiotics. You're going to need to keep a close eye on him. You're going to want to re-image him when he completes his course of antibiotics as you get things set up for surgical intervention. Well, fortunately, our patient had no complications of endocarditis, and we did monitor him very closely over a six-week course. And he came back for a repeat transesophageal echo, and his vegetation was unchanged over that time period. And just as importantly, his mitral regurgitation was unchanged, and his LV actually started to dilate a bit more. Everyone, including the patient, agreed it was time to move forward with surgery. He went to the OR the next week and everything went well. He got a brand new bioprosthetic mitral valve. And now his endocarditis is essentially cured. So what happens next? How do we counsel him with regards to antibiotic prophylaxis for procedures going forward? Are there other precautions we should know about? Yeah, Matt, uh, this is a great case. I'm glad the patient did well. So the patient needs to be cognizant about maintaining meticulous dental hygiene with antibiotic prophylaxis prior to dental procedures. That can be one of the biggest risk factors for infective endocarditis. He's also going to need surveillance echocardiography for his bioprosthetic valve, according to practice guidelines, and regular physical exams that include valvular auscultation. So he's out of the woods, but he's going to need close surveillance for basically the rest of his life. And that's it for case one. The patient did fantastically post-op. Let's move on to case two. Thanks, Matt. That was a great case. So for the second case, we have a much younger patient. Our second patient is a 26-year-old female with a history of injection drug use who presents with chest discomfort and dyspnea. She was found to have a temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Chest CT revealed multiple septic emboli and a surface echocardiogram demonstrated multiple vegetations on each tricuspid leaflet the largest measuring two by two centimeters, along with severe tricuspid regurgitation. Blood cultures quickly grew MRSA in each bottle. Going through the due criteria, she meets definite endocarditis criteria with her typical bacteremia, vegetation, fever, high-risk status, and embolic phenomena. However, this situation is quite different than for our first case. Dr. Colin, is there a different approach for this young patient with right-sided vegetation compared to the first patient? Yeah, Tiffany, this is a very different situation. So when I see right-sided endocarditis and staph aureus, I think dirty needles until proven otherwise. This is more likely than not caused by IV drug use. However, IV drug use, it's important to realize, does not always equate to IV drug abuse. Patients with indwelling catheters or lines certainly use IV drugs and can be prone to right-sided staph aureus endocarditis. In this case, however, I'm much more concerned about IV drug abuse. Uh, thank you, Dr. Cullen. And, and for right-sided endocarditis, um, when do we consider surgical intervention? Um, is it different than what we discussed for a first patient? And if the patient's not a surgical candidate, when is the role for suction thrombectomy? What goes into that decision-making process? Yeah, these are always tough cases. So I'd consider surgical intervention in a few situations. So if you have, number one, if you have a fungal organism that's difficult to eradicate, that's going to be tough to treat medically. Number two, if you have a really big vegetation over 20 millimeters, 
that can be an indication for surgical intervention. Number three, if the patient is employed, right heart failure from severe tricuspid regurgitation. Number four, if he can't clear the blood cultures or the patient remains febrile. Number five, if the patient embolizes to the lungs despite appropriate antibiotic therapy. And number six, if the patient has any evidence of abscess on the right side of the heart, particularly in the setting of a prosthetic valve. Those would all be indications for surgical intervention. That being said, medical therapy is generally the preferred approach to right-sided infective endocarditis and is often quite effective. Most patients, about 85%, are going to respond to medical therapy. Now, your question about aspiration thrombectomy is interesting. It certainly generates a lot of buzz, and anyone who's been involved in these cases knows it's kind of cool to, you know, stick that catheter into the heart and see that, that vegetation just get sucked up into the catheter. What data is out there would suggest that aspiration thrombectomy can certainly be effective at reducing vegetation size and potentially the embolic risk. But I'd be concerned about the ability to clear the infection completely with aspiration thrombectomy. We just don't have long-term outcomes or trials to support broad use of this practice. Now, I'm not going to exclude it, though, as investigational or experimental therapy in certain high-risk patients, but I wouldn't answer aspiration thrombectomy on your board exams. That's not, not necessarily going to be the guideline-directed medical approach. Most of the patients with right-sided endocarditis, you're going to treat medically, and then in a few selected subgroups of patients, criteria aligned, you're going to move towards surgical intervention. Oh, thank you for those, those pearls. Very good to know. Um, and there has been a lot of talk out there about multidisciplinary endocarditis teams, and we kind of touched on it earlier. But how do these teams work, these multidisciplinary teams? And how could it help a patient like this? Matt, I think this patient definitely deserves a multidisciplinary approach. We touched on this a bit for the first case, the importance of involving cardiology, cardiovascular surgery, infectious diseases, potentially neurology and anesthesiology to assess any neurological complications and to help with perioperative planning respectively. And in this patient where you're concerned about IV drug abuse as a cause for the endocarditis, I'd also add addiction medicine to that group. The guidelines actually recognize the importance of addiction medicine. They give a class one recommendation to consultation with addiction medicine in patients with concurrent infective endocarditis and IV drug use. The IV drug use is really the crux of the matter, and the patient needs to stop abusing IV drugs to have any chance at a favorable long-term outcome and reduce her future likelihood of developing endocarditis. And so involvement of addiction medicine is really key with the multidisciplinary approach that we've already discussed. Thank you, Dr. Colin. This was definitely a complicated case. The patient was discussed by a multidisciplinary team that included addiction medicine, infectious disease, cardiology, and cardiac surgery. She was treated with vancomycin and underwent TEE-guided debulking with aspiration thrombectomy that led to complete echo resolution of the vegetation. She was successfully discharged with IV antibiotics, and we we're awaiting follow-up. This case works so well with the first one to show the different treatment options available for patients with endocarditis. A multidisciplinary approach to any medical diagnosis is so important, and infective endocarditis is just one example. I think we have a third case. That's great. Let's get to it. Yes, thank you, Tiffany. Uh, and moving on to our third case. Uh, we now have a 60-year-old woman with a bioprosthetic aortic valve that was implanted five years ago for aortic valve endocarditis. 
During the initial endocarditis presentation, she had an aortic root abscess infringing upon her conduction system, leading to complete heart block, requiring a permanent dual chamber pacemaker. Now she's come with the emergency department with fever and shortness of breath. Her temperature is 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 100 over 54. Her heart rate is uh, a sense V paced at 100 beats per minute with a respiratory rate at 30 breaths per minute. A point of care ultrasound in the ED shows a highly mobile mass on the LVOT aspect of one of the prosthetic leaflets. Blood cultures are drawn immediately and then she is empirically started on broad spectrum antibiotics. A subsequent formal transthoracic echo showed an elevated prosthetic gradient with a peak velocity of 3.5 meters per second, up from 2.1 meters per second just six months ago. She also had aortic regurgitation, though with a highly eccentric jet, it was difficult to quantify the severity. But Dr. Cullen, how would the initial workup and plan differ from the prior cases? Does the prosthetic valve change anything? Yeah, Matt, the prosthetic valve is going to change a few things. Number one, the microbiology. So I become much more concerned about staph species rather than strep species. So when patients have commutatively acquired endocarditis of the native valve, strep species are going to predominate. In this setting with a prosthesis, I'm much more concerned about staph warriors or coag negative staph. So it's going to change the microbiology. It's also going to change the imaging, now, particularly the role of an FTG PET CT, which I think we'll discuss more as the case unfolds. And with three, it's going to change potential complications. And so you become much more concerned about valve dehiscence or perforation, which is something that the dehiscence part isn't going to happen with, with a native, native valve endocarditis. Number four, it's going to impact my antimicrobial therapy. So patients with prosthetic valve endocarditis bought themselves at minimum six weeks of antibiotic therapy, potentially longer, depending on the situation. And number five, it's going to impact surgical planning. So if this patient does end up going to the operating room, it's going to require a reduced anatomy um, that can lead to its own intrinsic surgical risks of complications. So yeah, the prosthetic valve is going to change multiple aspects of this case, which is why I'm glad we're discussing it. Thank you for those insights. Um, now, this is a pretty clear-cut case with a septic presentation uh, and imaging showing a clear vegetation. She's bacteremic with a typical organism and has new valvular dysfunction. But many times, a vegetation is not so clear with prosthetic endocarditis. Dr. Cullen, what if surface echo revealed nonspecific leaflet thickening rather than a vegetation? Could you describe the role of multimodality imaging to better define the presence of prosthetic valves endocarditis? Absolutely. And so we already talked with the first case about the complementary role of transthoracic and transesophageal echocardiography. Even though this patient had a non-diagnostic transthoracic echocardiogram, they certainly deserve another echocardiogram with a transesophageal echocardiogram because, again, like we discussed with the first case, they serve complementary roles. Now, the challenge with TEE in a patient with an aortic prosthesis is going to be seeing the anterior aspect of the aortic annulus. This is particularly an issue with mechanical prostheses, but it can also occur with bioprosthetic aortic valves. And so if the TEE and TTE findings together do not clearly establish a diagnosis, that's when you need to consider an FDG PET CT looking for perivalvular inflammation that could suggest infective endocarditis. This patient is far enough out from surgery where an FDG PET CT won't just detect post-surgical inflammation. Generally, in the first six weeks after surgery, 
PET CT can give very nonspecific findings. But several years out, if you see inflammation around that valve on a PET CT in this clinical setting, I think you basically got your diagnosis. The other piece of imaging that I would mention is a gated cardiac CT. It can be important for surgical planning, assessment of the coronary arteries, and evaluation of the aortic root and ascending aorta. And oftentimes at our institution, surgeons will want those, particularly in this setting where uh, the patient would be undergoing a reduced sternotomy before they take the patient back to the operating room. Right. And, you know, the pacer really throws a wrench into the equation. What do we do about the pacemaker? The echo, as well as the subsequent TEE, showed no obvious vegetation, either the atrial or the ventricular lead. But with the bacteremia and concern for endocarditis, what's the role of lead extraction here? Well, the pacer needs to come out, uh, no doubt about it. Any patient with an intracardiac device and definite infective endocarditis needs the device removed, hands down. That's going to be a class one recommendation in the most recent bulk guidelines. And this applies even if the pocket is clean and the device doesn't have any vegetations on the transesophageal echocardiogram. You can't keep the device in, give the patient antibiotics, and expect to totally clear the organism. So the device needs to come out. No questions asked. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Cullen. And, And that's what happened. The patient went to the operating room for lead extraction and for valve replacement for the prosthetic valve endocarditis. She left the operating room with temporary external pacing wires since she was patient-dependent and one week later had a leadless pacemaker placed. Dr. Cullen, that's all the cases we have for today. Any closing words of wisdom about infective endocarditis? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So a few uh, closing thoughts that are going to be relevant for your practice. Your initial board exam for the fellows that are planning for that and any recertification or longitudinal knowledge assessment exams you plan to take. So Take-home point number one would be know the Duke criteria. They've been validated over several decades as highly accurate for making these complex diagnoses. And if you know the Duke criteria well, it can really guide your initial evaluation. Number two, get patients with infective endocarditis to a referral center where they can receive multidisciplinary care. You're going to want to involve specialists from cardiology, cardiovascular surgery, infectious diseases potentially addiction medicine, potentially neurology, potentially cardiac anesthesia. Number three, you got to know the indications for early surgical intervention that we discussed, particularly left-sided staph aureus or fungal endocarditis, perivalvular complications, persistent embolizations, persistent fevers, bacteremia, or valvular destruction with heart failure. Number four, if you have a device, whether it's a pacer or an ICD in the setting of infective endocarditis, the device needs to come out, no doubt about it. I like to tell our fellows, when in doubt, take it out. That's all I've got. This is a great case. Really appreciate the opportunity to be involved. Well, everyone, thank you so much, Dr. Cullen, for your expertise and teaching, and really also to Tiffany and Matt for setting us up for a great discussion. And I'd like to just take a pause to reflect that this whole Beyond the Board series was inspired by the Mayo Clinic Board Review. And I think many of us fellows, faculty, even residents make use of the program to review cardiology, not just for the boards, but but also to just, you know, brush up for the next time we see patients with these problems. Dr. Cullen, yourself, Dr. Jeff Geske, and Dr. Amy Pollock now run and lead the Mayo Board Review course for the benefit of many of us. Can I ask, what what do you get out of it? What makes your heart flutter about uh, running the board review? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Amit. Um, you know, we've been fortunate to be, you know, following in the footsteps of giants, uh, Dr. Rick Nishimura, Dr. Steve Amon, who 
built the Blue View course from the ground up, starting it over 25 years ago. And um, we're just trying to build on their legacy and, and continue to, to make our course the, the preeminent offering for people reviewing for the boards, maintaining their certification, keeping up with their um, LKA questions, or just uh, staying up, up to date on the most recent uh, clinical practice guidelines. And, and we see this relationship here as, as a way to sort of reach some of the fellows that, that you engage in cardio nodes and all of your, your listeners out there and really uh, synergize with the product that you've been able to uh, develop a bit. And so we appreciate the opportunity to, to run this series. Um, we think that what you guys are doing here at Cardio Nodes is great and really, really a cutting edge in terms of education. And we're delighted to be a part of it and sort of couple it with what, we've, what we're offering from a more traditional educational perspective with, with our board review course. So that, thanks again for this opportunity. Hopefully we can continue to collaborate on this series in the, in the months and years ahead. The pleasure is very much ours, Dr. Cullen. Uh, your passion for education very much resonates with ours. Uh, thank you again for the collaboration and Cardio Nerds, until next time. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Adriana Maris, intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, Health Chalcic, and student researcher at Yale Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.